I want to take you to a, a passage this morning that, that, that kind of hits some of the themes that we looked at in the Sermon on the Mount. This is kind of my last, last Sunday before some holidays. And, uh, although we'll be, Jody and I'll be here next week and, and you'll have the, the privilege of meeting my friend Jason, uh, just a great, great pastor, great pastor's heart, great guy. We're looking forward to spending some time with them and it'll be, be fun for you guys to get to meet him as well next Sunday. But, um, you know, because it's, you know, my last Sunday here, I thought, let's go somewhere else this morning and uh, look at another text. And this one kind of hits some of these themes that we saw in the Sermon on the Mount. This is one of my favorite parables as well. We're going to be in Luke chapter 16, and we're going to look at verses 1 to 13. But this is one of my favorite parables, and I, I love teaching the parables, and I'm really looking forward to getting to some of those in, uh, in Matthew as well. I love working to rightly understand the parables and to, to rightly interpret them and, and, and discover what they teach. And this is one of my favorite parables because it's one of the harder ones to understand and also the, the lesson that it teaches is just so great. I called today's message a lesson in righteousness from the unrighteous. A lesson in righteousness from the unrighteous. It's a lesson in heavenly mindedness from a worldly minded man. And so let's begin by reading the text, Luke chapter 16, and I'll I'll read 1 to 14, but we're really going to look at verses 1 to 13 this morning. He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig and I am ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do so that when I am removed from the management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you've not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. 
You cannot serve God and money. And then verse 14 says, And the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed Him. And we'll just stop the reading there. Now we're going to work through our text this morning under four headings. And a a great way as we kind of get into this, a great way to interpret the parables is to begin just by just by understanding the story itself. And once you have that story, then you can move to understanding the spiritual meaning of the parable. And so we're going to follow that principle today as we work through the text. And first, what we're going to look at is the predicament in verses 1 to 3. And so we'll see the predicament of the manager. And then we're going to see the play in verses 4 to 7. And this is where the the manager comes up with a plan, a a play, a a way of, of deceiving, we could say. But he comes up with a play into securing his future. Then in verses, the very first part of verse 8, we'll see the praise where the, the master commends the dishonest manager. Literally, he praises him for his shrewdness. And then in verses, the last part of verse 8 to the end, we're going to see the principle and we'll get to the lesson of the parable and what it teaches. So we're going to see again the predicament, the play, the praise, and the principle, and and you have that in your outlines there. But before we get into the text, I just want to talk a little bit about parables in general. Parables are are stories, they're made up stories, made up by the Lord, and they're told to teach spiritual truth. They're they're kind of told, they're they're stories that that are held alongside spiritual truth, and the, the story represents or means something in the spiritual realm that the Lord is trying to teach. And typically, parables teach one and only one truth. This is different than maybe a, an allegory. Allegories are, are stories in which everything in the story represents something else. Parables teach one main point, one point about a spiritual truth. And the main truth of the story represents the main truth that Jesus is seeking to communicate to his disciples. And the gospel writers and Jesus, when he, when he gives a parable, he always gives us enough so that we can understand what is the main thing that, that the parable teaches or what is the main thing that we should apply to our lives. There's usually a question in a parable or a a statement before or after the parable which kind of points us to the intended meaning. Sometimes a surprise element within the parable kind of gives us the clue as to how we're supposed to understand this thing and apply it. And in this parable, we see that kind of a statement in the second half of verse 8. That's the cue or the clue that that shows us how to interpret the parable. Look at how it wor- how it goes there. The second half of verse 8. Note that word for. So the, verse 8 says, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. And then here it is, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And so this is a parable that has to do with how we, the sons of light, how we deal with our generation. And we'll find out what that means as we go along. But first, let's get into the story itself. The first thing we see is the predicament in verses 1 to 3. And so number one in your outline, the predicament. And in verse 1, we meet these two main characters. We see there's a rich man and the manager. 
And as we move through the story, the focus is really on the manager and what he does. And in this first scene, we see the manager's predicament. He's in trouble. He's faced with a a crisis of sorts. Look again at verse 1. And he also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me. I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. So the first thing we should notice here is that this is a parable directed towards Jesus' disciples. This teaching is for those who have decided to follow Jesus. And it's for those who are believers, for those who have trusted in Christ for their salvation. In other words, what I want you to see is this. This this is a parable that teaches us how to live if we are saved and not one that teaches us how to be saved. And this will be important to keep in mind later on. We should also note another audience. We saw in verse 14, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all of these things and they ridiculed him. And so this is a parable for the disciples, but it's given in a hostile environment and the Pharisees are there listening in. And those people who, who love money scoffed at this teaching. They mocked it. They derided it. And they could not or they would not accept it. Now the parable itself begins as many do. There was a man. There was a, a rich man and there was a man and literally uh, the translation would be there was a certain man was rich. A certain man was rich. And this certain man was, was actually quite rich. He seems to have, have uh, been an owner of a great deal of land. And his tenants, they, they owe him uh, really a ton of money. Lots and lots of money here. And in verse 5, this man's manager summons his master's debtors And the two examples that we see in verse 6 and 7 show that they owe this rich man massive amounts of money. In verse 6, a hundred measures of oil would be about 900 gallons of oil worth about three years of income. And in verse 7, a hundred measures of wheat is probably, uh, 100, sorry, 1,100 bushels Worth of wheat, if that means anything to you, it doesn't mean much to me, but about, about the produce of a, a hundred acres of land. And remember, this is a day without tractors. Worth about seven and a half years wages to the average laborer. And so you imagine if somebody owed you seven and a half years of wages, that's a pretty significant debt. And so this certain man was very, very wealthy. And like many wealthy landowner owners in that day, he had a manager to manage his land with him or for him. A manager is also known as a steward. And that's somebody who ran the business and ran the household on behalf of the rich man. And often a rich landowner would, would live far away from his land or, or at least he would live far away from some of the land that he owned. And so they would hire local managers to take care of business in their place. And sometimes these managers were slaves, but other times they were free agents who hired themselves out. And this kind of a, this job, this kind of a stewardship, this kind of a manager position was a highly sought after position. 
This is one of those dream jobs in the ancient Near East. This is kind of a, a luxury. You, you have control of all of this man's wealth and land. And so this is the, we could maybe think about it as like the top of the corporate ladder. The manager was in charge of all of their master's goods. And it was all at their disposal. This is a dream job. The manager had absolute control of everything, of the servants, of the land, of the, of the produce of the land. Everything was as, as his own. He was regarded as the owner himself. He had legal authority. And whatever the manager agreed to, the owner was bound by it. Any deal the manager made was regarded as if the owner himself had made it. That's how it worked. And this was so much so the case that that there was really nothing an owner could do if a if a free agent manager maybe there would be a little difference if you were a slave manager but if a if a free agent manager made some bad deals and the owner lost money there was really nothing that the owner could do about it and so the choosing of a trustworthy manager was incredibly incredibly important so look back at verse 1 there there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. The rich man heard a report that the manager was was wasting his possessions, squandering in the Legacy Standard Bible, New American Standard Bible. This same word was used of uh, this same word squandering was used in Luke 15:13 about the the prodigal son who squandered his property in reckless living. The prodigal son wasted his property. He, he scattered, scattered it around in a reckless, wasteful manner. And the rich man confronts the manager about this in verse 2. And he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. He asks him to turn in the account of your management. And in effect, he says, Turn in the books. I want to see the books. Give me the records of the business transactions. And he would, this, this rich man would need those transactions to give to whoever he hired as a replacement. And so our manager in the story got fired. You can no longer be manager. You are fired. And it seems to me that the, the charges were likely true. He doesn't defend himself. He doesn't ask for mercy. We really don't find out much more about this. But so far as we know, we don't, at this point anyways, we don't know for sure if the manager was unrighteous or not. So far as we know, we can't really tell. He could have been negligent. He could have been wasteful. He could have been unwise. He could have just been ill-suited for the job. But whatever it was, there's this report that, that there's this waste going on, this squandering going on, and he was fired. And so here's the manager's predicament. He is... He's actually going to be fired. He's going to be let go. He's going to lose his job. And guess what? Nobody hires managers who are fired for wasting their master's possessions. Right? Nobody's going to hire this guy. And word of that sort of thing traveled fast. You know, we live in Lacrete here. We know how word can travel fast about somebody getting fired or something happening in town, right? Word travels fast. And, and so everyone's going to know this guy was fired for wasting his master's goods. And when we get into verse 3, we get a glimpse into this man's heart. Look at verse 3 again. The manager said to himself, he's talking to himself here, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? What am I going to do? 
I'm not strong enough to dig and I am ashamed to beg. And so his future is up in the air and he says to himself, what am I going to do? This is kind of like a little anxiety moment. What am I going to do? What's going to happen to me? He's concerned about his future well-being. Where it says there, my master is taking the management away. It it implies that there's a, a process now that has begun, but it's not yet complete. And so he's he's in the process of getting fired, but he's got a little bit of time. And the manager, he's still got the books. He's fired, but nobody knows yet except for him and the owner. And that's a bad practice, by the way. If you're going to fire somebody, you probably want to let them go and, and make sure you get those books before that whole thing's complete. But that, anyway, this is the story. This is how it's happening. The manager's in trouble. He's used to his luxury lifestyle. He, he, he doesn't, he's not strong enough to dig. He's got soft hands. He's, he's, he's a, he's a luxury boy and he's not ready for manual labor. Manual labor is out of the question. No one's gonna, no one's gonna make him a manager. Manual labor's out of the question and he's also a little bit proud. He, do, he doesn't want to beg on the streets. What, what am I gonna do? He seems to have no options before him. He's in a predicament. And so we have a man in a crisis concerned about his future estate, concerned about his well-being, and we need to kind of keep that in mind then as we go along. So that was the predicament. Now let's look at number two. Let's look at the play. We're going to see here the play in verses four to seven. The manager comes up with a plan to secure his future. He's, uh, he's come up with a plan. Look at verse 4. I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from the management, people may receive me into their houses. Now, the New King James translates that, I know, I know what to do. And it's a, it's a, a vivid description there at the beginning of verse 4. I have decided what to do. It's a, a vivid expression. Like when a light bulb appears over the head of a cartoon character, it's like, ding, I know what I'm going to do. And an idea has suddenly, vividly, just instantly kind of popped into his head. And the purpose of this decision that he's come to is so that when I am removed, people may receive me into their homes. And it's literally just so that they will receive me, not people, but so that they will receive me. And his plan then is to ingratiate himself with his master's debtors. And he hopes to make them indebted to him so that they will welcome him when he is removed. And in that culture, if someone did something for you, it was expected that you would return them a favor. You know, you do me a favor, I'll do you a favor. You scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. And so there's this kind of reciprocal situation. Now this plan, this play is an evil, deceptive uh, plan. The manager is pulling a fast one on his master. And he's going to cook the books. He's going to he's going to then cook the books and then give them back to the master. And that's why we're calling this the play. It's a a scheme. It's a deceitful scheme and it's intended to rob the master before everyone finds out that he's fired. And so look at verse 5. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, "How much do you owe my master?" He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill, write 80. The New American Standard makes it it more clear that the master summoned each one 
of his master's debtors. Each one, the original as well. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, it's really, it's literally each one. And the two then, we get two representative examples in verses six and seven. Now we don't know how many debtors the master had. It's not important, but what is important is that the master summoned the debtors one by one, everyone who owed his master money. And the way this worked was that legal contracts were made in duplicate. One copy was in the manager's handwriting and another copy was in the debtor's handwriting. And so in verse 5, he says to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. Now a measure of oil there, a measure was a Hebrew measurement called a bath. And a bath was about eight or nine gallons of oil. A hundred baths would be 800 or 900 gallons of, and this is olive oil, that's a lot of oil. One commentator said that, quote, 150 olive trees, which is what, which, which is about, about how much would make this 800, 900 gallons of oil. 150 olive trees is equivalent to the wages of about three, uh, sorry, about three years of, for the average worker. So the, the value of this is about three years of wages. And so this is a significant debt, well beyond what the average farmer would owe a landowner. Look at what the manager does in verse 6. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. The manager, as manager, had the authority to make a change like that. And notice there he says, quickly. He doesn't have much time and, and he's got to make these shady deals fast. And so he's kind of, he's quickly making these deals before the master returns. And the master could arrive any day to check the books and remove the manager from his position. And so he says quickly and quickly shows us that this is a, a dishonest transaction going on. He's not doing something good here. He reduced the debt by 50%. And that would be the equivalent again of a year and a half of wages for the average laborer. And the manager does almost the same with the next debtor. Look at verse seven. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. A hundred measures here is a hundred cores of wheat, which is about the yield of a hundred acres of land. Now, ancient measurements kind of varied throughout time and they were, they were valued compared on other commodities. And so it's hard to be super precise on ancient measurements, but a hundred cores would have been about 1,100 bushels. Enough food to feed 150 people for a year. That's a lot of food. 150 people, sorry, yeah, enough enough food to feed 150 people for one year, or we could reverse it around and we could say that it's enough food to feed one person for 150 years. One manager, maybe. Another way to think about it would be the in the, the wages of the average worker, 100 cores of wheat would be worth about seven and a half years wages. And so he said to this guy, take your bill and write 80. Again, he reduced the amount owing this time by 20%. And 20% of seven and a half years, interestingly enough, works out to the same, a year and a half of wages for the average worker. So both debts were removed by about a year and a half worth of wages. And he did this, remember, he did something like this with each one of the debtors. The play then is to have these people owe him a favor and really a a really big favor. 
He wants to become a, and here's what it is, he wants to become a professional freeloader for the rest of his life. He doesn't want to dig, he doesn't want to beg, he's going to live on the couch in these people's houses for the next, you know, number of years for the rest of his life. And if he did this enough times, these debtors might repay him with 20 to 20, sorry, 10 to 20 years or, or, of wages or 10 to 20 years of him sleeping on the couch. And so he thinks he's come up with a real good deal. He's not going to have to dig. He's not going to have to beg. And there's really no other way of looking at it, although sometimes some commentators do try to find a positive spin on this whole thing. I think that's, that's just out of the question. The manager cheated his master by reducing the debts. In verse 1, he might have been just a poor manager, but now we see that he is indeed unrighteous. He's selfish. He's only thinking about himself. He's only thinking about his future. And he's unrighteous, but he seems to have solved his dilemma. And now as we go into verse 8, we're surprised here with something. We're surprised with the response of the master. And I called this the praise in the first part of verse 8. Look at verse 8. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Literally, the master praised the unrighteous manager. That's, that's how I would translate that. The master praised the unrighteous manager. He praised him. Now, what's the deal here? This is unusual. This is surprising. Would you commend somebody for cheating you out of this kind of a debt? The surprise praise here has led to a, a number of interpretive views on the parable. Um, Parables are often a place where there's, there's various interpretations. They're, they're harder to understand. They require more work. One of my favorite commentators boiled this down to 16 options, 16 core options of how to interpret this thing. And I'm not going to go through really any of them today. I'm just going to give you what I view as the right interpretation. And if, if you have questions or if you've heard other interpretations, we could talk about it maybe after if you wanted. But we need to notice here is, is what the master praised the manager for. Look at it there in the text. What did he praise him for? It wasn't for stealing his goods. It wasn't for plundering his property. It wasn't at all because he did something good. He's a, the unrighteous manager. It's right there in the text. He's the, the dishonest manager is how the ESV translates it. So why did he praise him? Well, look at verse 8. Why did he praise him? For his shrewdness and nothing else. He was shrewd. To be shrewd means to, to act with understanding. Understanding associated with wisdom and insight. And to act shrewdly then means to be sensible, thoughtful, wise, prudent. The praises for how the manager made the most of the situation. For, not for, not for cheating him, not for the unrighteousness, but how he made the most of the situation. He was wise in the way that he handled the situation. Not that wisdom or not that unrighteousness is wise, but, but in his, in his, the way that he came up with a solution, he was shrewd. He was wise. He applied understanding and he came up with a plan that worked to secure his future. One commentator, Stanley Ellison said this. He said, quote, it wasn't the ethics of this scallywag that Jesus praised, but rather the crook's shrewdness or sharp thinking in regards to the future. Unlike the sons of light, this worldling was no dullard in planning for tomorrow. End quote. 
And so what we have here then is one son of this age praising another son of this age for outsmarting him. Commentator Robert Stein said, quote, It is best to interpret the manager's actions as being dishonest. He is commended essentially for being a shrewd scoundrel and taking care of his future. End quote. Another thing that, that I would want to point out here is that the surprise element in the parable is, is often a, a clue to how to, it should be interpreted. And, and we'll, we'll kind of see how that works as we kind of work through this. But shrewdness is praised by the master. It's not a praise again for unrighteousness, but simply for shrewdness. And specifically, shrewdness in preparing for the future is what elicits this praise from the master. Shrewdness in preparing for the future. And so let's summarize the story. We still haven't even talked about the spiritual meaning of this, but let's just summarize the story as it is. A worldly, unrighteous manager is in a predicament. He's losing his job and he's worried about his future prospects. And he's got a limited amount of time to act, but he came up with a shrewd plan to gain favor with his master's debtors. They're going to welcome him into their homes when this transaction is done and when he's finally fired. And this represents then, this whole story represents the spiritual truth that we can now begin to get into. Again, a worldly, unrighteous steward shrewdly acted to be welcomed in the future. And so let's go number four. We'll call this number four the principle in the last part of verse eight to the end. And we'll look at the rest of the text under this heading. This is the principle of the whole thing. And as we look at these closing verses now, I just want to, I want to kind of give you the structure of how these verses are working and then we'll dig into them in a little bit more detail. The parable ends in verse eight where the, the master prays, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. That's the end of the parable itself. The second part of verse eight is Jesus explaining how to interpret the parable. He says, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. The New American Standard and the Legacy Standard Bible translates verse 8 like this, the last part. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. And that's a proverbial statement, a generally true observation about worldly unsaved people compared to saved people. And so there's a, a this general statement of truth here about the sons of this age versus the sons of light. Now, moving into verse 9 then, it provides specific application. What should we do? How do we respond to this thing? Jesus says in verse 9, And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into their eternal dwellings. And then verses 10 to 13 are intended to drive the truth home by challenging us and and warning us. And we'll look at those when we get there. So that's kind of the structure of the whole thing. Now the second part of verse 8, in that second part, Jesus makes a shocking statement meant to point us to the spiritual meaning of the parable. And he divides the world into two groups. There's the sons of this world and the sons of light. And we're kind of used to this kind of a thing, this kind of division. There's believers and unbelievers. There's saved and unsaved. There's the lost and there's the found. There's those who are born of the light and those who are, and those who are born from above on the same side. And then there's those, those who remain in the darkness. 
And that darkness is the darkness of our natural birth. When we are born into this world, we we're darkness. When we're born again, we become sons of light. Ephesians 5.8 says, You were, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And so a child of light is a son of light. They've been delivered from darkness. And you're either one or the other. You're not partly born again. Nobody's partly born again. You're either a son of the light or you're a son of darkness. Now, another way that Scripture talks about these two groups, especially in the Old Testament, is the unrighteous versus the righteous. The righteous and the unrighteous. And Jesus says one of these groups are more shrewd than the other. The sons of the world or the sons of this age are more shrewd than believers. They're more shrewd in dealing with their own generation. Now think about it. Look at the unrighteous manager. He was more shrewd to prepare for his future than the sons of light are to prepare for theirs. And this is what is sometimes called then a how much more parable. How much more parables are they compare one thing to another and they go from the lesser to the greater. Right? If you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, then how much more will your Father in heaven good give good gifts to, to, to His children? And so we could put it this way, if an unrighteous manager can be so shrewd in preparing for his temporal future, then how much more should a righteous person prepare for their eternal future? And that kind of gives us the understanding of the parable. And then that's the idea here. But, but look at the text again. Jesus doesn't actually say how much more. He makes a comparison. One is more than another. The unrighteous manager or unrighteous sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. And what this is then, it's a sort of condemnation for us. It's a sort of a, a, a rebuke to us. The world, the unrighteous, the unsaved are wiser, craftier, more thoughtful, more diligent, more prudent in preparing for their temporal good than believers are at preparing for eternity. And when you think about it, that, that stings a little bit, but that's what Jesus is saying. And he's telling us so that we can see it and so that we can repent of it, so that we can acknowledge it and change. Generally speaking, what Jesus says is true. And, and just think about it. How carefully and diligently do unbelievers prepare for their future? There's almost nothing they care about more than taking care of themselves, right? You just think about that. There's, there's almost nothing that unbelievers care about more than just taking care of themselves. Their comfort and their well-being is chief among their affections. The un unrighteous manager, he's a great illustration of the whole thing. He didn't want to dig. He was ashamed of begging, and so he made plans for his future. He took action. He put all of his mental and physical energy into securing for himself a comfortable future. Now ask yourself, did the manager work harder and think wiser about his future than you work and think about, than you work and think to prepare for your eternal destiny? He says to himself, I've only got a limited amount of time to, to prepare to be received. I better act quickly and decisively. Again, verse 8, For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation 
than the sons of light. Brothers and sisters, do we not often live as if there were no rewards in heaven? As if there was no heaven or, or was no eternal state? Listen, if an unrighteous man who cares for nothing but himself can prepare for his future, should we not much more prepare for our future, our heavenly future? And there's a, a, a double contrast here then, and, and we do well, I think, to emphasize both sides of this. First, there's the, the temporal versus the eternal. And I think we get that. There's, there's eternity and there's time. There's a short time now, there's an eternity coming forever. But second, there's also a contrast here between the unrighteous and the righteous. Part of our righteousness, and, and we saw this especially in the Sermon on the Mount, part of what it means to be righteous is that we live with our reward in heaven in mind. That we are to be eternally minded people, or at least we should be eternally minded people. Our righteousness flows from our new nature, which was created in righteousness and holiness, according to Ephesians 4.24. And the point is this, we have a, a twofold reason then to prepare better than the sons of this world. First of all, our preparation is for eternity, for eternal life, for eternal reward that will last forever and that will never fail. But secondly, we are righteous and that, that helps us to care, which leads us to prepare. You see, we serve in righteousness to build for eternity. And so our righteousness in itself helps us to live in light of eternity. Now look at verse 9, where Jesus says, And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Here is Jesus' command that flows out of the parable. Here is what the Lord tells you today. This is the, the word of the Lord for you and me today. Make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. The main point of the parable is that we ought to be shrewd in preparing for our eternal dwelling. And the specific application of the parable is that, that we should use unrighteous wealth to do it. We should use unrighteous wealth to prepare. And note the parallel then between, look at verse 4 and verse 9, and just kind of compare these two. Look at verse 4 again. I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people, and remember it was just literally, they may receive me into their homes. Now look at verse 9. I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Now there's, there's some parallels here and they're even clearer in the original. Both have the verb to do or to make. And in Greek, there's a one verb that means to do and to make, same verb. And so verse four, the manager says, I have decided what to do. And then in verse nine, it says, make friends. And that's the same verb. In, in Greek, it's normal to say, do friends. Do make is the same. So, so I have decided what to do. And here's what we're to do. We're to make friends. And then both have, so that when. So verse four says, so that when I am removed. And verse nine says, so that when it fails. And both verses, verse four and nine have that they may receive. And that's the same Greek verb there as well. And so look at verse 4 again. So that when I am removed from management, they may receive me into their houses. 
And then verse 9, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. And the sense that the parallelism gives then is that, that we are to follow the example of the unrighteous manager. We're to follow the example of the unrighteous manager. Not by doing unrighteousness, but by being shrewd to prepare for the future. And the question for us is, how are we to prepare for our future? How do we prepare for our eternal dwellings? What does it mean to make friends so that they will receive me into eternal dwellings? Now notice first that there's, there's a great emphasis all through this whole thing, this whole parable on what we do. Four times in the first nine verses we have the verb to do or to make. The manager said, what shall I do? Verse four, I know what I will do. That would be a literal translation. I know what I will do. Verse 8, the master praised the manager because he acted shrewdly. And that's the same verb there. He did shrewdly. And then in verse 9, again, make friends is that same verb. And so Jesus is, wants us to do something. And that's what we, we saw in the Sermon on the Mount when we talked about what it means to lay up treasures in heaven. And how are we to do that? How are we to lay up treasures in heaven? Remember we said it was by doing and acting according to the Word. And for Jesus' sake and by receiving whatever persecution or suffering that came from those actions. And so the wealth of unrighteousness then that we're to make friends with, that word is that, that word mammon. And that, that, that wealth of unrighteousness, that, that, that unrighteous mammon refers to that in which one trusts. So it can refer to property or possessions or money or wealth. Mammon in Scripture is, is always negatively used as that which is opposite to God and that which the ungodly live for and, and trust in and, and that which they worship instead of God. Property and possessions and wealth will not endure eternally. They will fail. Unrighteous mammon will fail. And so Jesus is saying in verse 9, use those things now to prepare for eternity. So that when it fails, when, when money, possessions, and earthly wealth fails, and, and it, it is going to fail, it's going to be useless when we die. He says, what you want to do then is use it now to prepare for eternity. Use it now and use it for eternal purposes. Invest it into eternity is what Jesus is saying. Invest it into eternal things. Jesus wants to, us to use what we have to make eternal friends. Again, commentator Stanley Ellison said it like this. He said, quote, the wise use of money is to convert it into eternal currency before its value plunges to zero at the grave. Making friends for eternity preserves their values and dividends forever. End quote. And again, Robert Stein said this, quote, the general sense is clear even if the meaning of friends is not. Believers should so conduct their lives that when this world and its wealth comes to an end, God will welcome them into His presence. End quote. Now these friends who will receive us are probably people who are going to be eternally blessed through our service for the Lord. Like the Master's debtors were blessed by the manager, so our deeds should impact those around us. What we do and how we live. Not by doing unrighteousness, but by doing righteousness. And this applies then to everything that we do. But, but Jesus 
narrows the focus to our use of money. Money is often a, a test of, of, of our hearts and what we live for. Mammon was often a, a thing that, that makes us lose our focus on eternity. Money, possessions, and, and uh, the things of this world often take us away from eternal mindedness. And verse 13 really brings this out by asking us, who do we love? Who are we devoted to? What are we, who are we serving? Who or what are we living for? Look at verse 13 where Jesus concludes this. He says, no servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. If you want to prepare for eternity, here's the key. And, and this is really important to get this. We do it by just by serving God. We do it by loving God, by being devoted to Him. That's really the only way that we can cast off the world is by loving God and living for Him and for His sake and being devoted to Him. Or we could put it negatively, don't serve money. Don't be a slave to money. Don't love possessions, wealth, or property. And we must almost despise those things or, or because they take our focus off of heaven. We're to do this not to earn salvation, but because we are saved. Look at verses 10 and 11 and 12 now. Jesus says, one who is faithful in very little. And the very little here is, is temporal possessions, temporary possessions of this life. One who is faithful in very little temporary possessions is also faithful in much. And the one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you've not been faithful in that which is another's, and what is another's here refers to, again to our possessions and reminds us that everything that we have, everything that we own belongs to God. And so if you've not been faithful in that which belongs to God, who will give you that which is your own? And what Jesus is, is calling us then to do here in light of eternity and how to live in light of eternity. He's calling us to faithfulness. The unrighteous manager, he was faithful to himself. We need to be faithful to God. Faithfulness to God is living for eternity. That's building up treasures in heaven. Faithfulness to God. And so we're in a similar position as that of the unrighteous manager. We are in a predicament, we could say. We could put it that way. We're in a predicament. We've been entrusted with resources and various skills and abilities. And we only have a limited time on earth until Jesus returns. Like the unrighteous manager, we need to be shrewd to prepare a heavenly welcome for ourselves. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Our play or our plan, not on unrighteousness, but our, our plan should be to give ourselves to the ministry, to serve God and to serve others. And so here's a question maybe to, to help us to be shrewd and to be a shrewd son of the Lord. How can I serve God in greater ways with my time, talents, and resources? This is a question that we should ask ourselves. How can I serve God in greater ways with my time, talents, and resources. This is kind of shrewdly preparing for eternity. Or another question we could ask is, is there a wiser, craftier, more thoughtful, more diligent, more prudent way to live 
to increase my impact on eternity. And a crucial part of this is to support the ministry of your local church. You know, by freeing me up to minister full-time, we are working together as a local church to impact eternity. And all of our expenses as a local church kind of fits in with this. You know, when I think about this for myself, I thank God for that church, what I was saved in. Now, I wish they were more doctrinally sound, but I, I thank God for those people who helped plant that church and gave to that church and supported that church so that that church was there for me on that day that I got saved. And everything that we give to the Lord and entrust to Him will be rewarded in heaven. And one day as, a, as our local church, I hope that we can support missionaries, solid missionaries who plant churches and train ministers of the gospel. And these are ways to invest mammon, to invest uh, money, to invest in eternity and, and turn it into eternal cur- currency. These friends that we make, these people that we reach for the gospel are going to be there to welcome us into those eternal dwellings on that last day. And so we have a limited time to prepare for our eternal dwelling. And whatever we do or suffer for the Lord and for His people, for His cause, for His kingdom, in reaching lost people and building the church, whatever we do or suffer for His sake will be rewarded in heaven. And on that day when we stand before Him, our Master will praise us. Like the Master praised the unrighteous manager, our Master will praise us and say to us, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this parable that teaches us to prepare for eternity. And we pray that, and we recognize what the truth of what You said, that the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation, in preparing for their own future, than often we are at preparing for ours. Father, we pray that You would first of all forgive us for that and help us to so live and to so suffer and to so serve You and to be devoted to You and serve You as a slave and to love You with our lives that we impact this world for the Gospel, that we impact this world for Your kingdom, and that we prepare for ourselves eternal dwellings, that we, we lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven. Father, we want this, but we, we sense the, the, the call of the world on us and then the, the, the desire within us to live for the things of this world. And we constantly need to be reminded, Father, pray that You would help us to live with eternity in mind and to love You and to almost despise this world, we ask in Jesus' name, Amen.